Welcome to episode four of the Talking Acoustics podcast. Talking Acoustics looks into the art and science of acoustics as I catch up with some of the people who spend their lives working in this field. I'm Matthew Watley. I work for Marshall Day Acoustics in Sydney, Australia, and I'm interested in anything to do with acoustics. This week I catch up with Glenn Leembruggen. Glenn is not your typical acoustical consultant. He's also heavily involved with electroacoustics, and he lectures in the architecture and design faculty at the University of Sydney. When he's not running one of his two companies or working at the university, he plays sax in a Chicago blues band. Uh, Glenn is a busy and interesting man and we had plenty to talk about, so let's get straight into it. Well, Glenn Leembruggen, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, good to be here. Um, now, you, uh, you're listed as an acoustic and electroacoustic engineer. Yep. How do you explain to people at a barbecue what that means? Um, it means that I work with sound that we want to hear as distinct from sound that we generally don't want to hear. <laughs> sound versus noise. Yep. Noise is noise. Acousticians like to think about the term noise. Yes, we do a lot of noise because it's bread and butter. But enhancing sound that makes our lives better in some way, speech, music, communication, that's the realm of room acoustics and electroacoustics. Yep. Um, audio's in there, but only effectively the loudspeaker delivery part of that. And included in loudspeakers, of course, you've got signal processors and amplifiers, but really it's loudspeakers that are the electroacoustics, you know, mixture of uh, electric and acoustics um, that f- form that are highly influential in the delivery of this sound that we want to hear. Um, if you're in a sound reinforcement context, then um, microphones are also electroacoustic transducers, and they're really important as well, especially um, if you're in a courtroom or parliament situation because microphones are ostensibly created equally often aren't. So they become really critical as well. So it's yeah. this it's the transduction from the two domains that make a lot of difference when it comes to sort of sound quality and you know the fidelity of the communication yeah. of speech and music communication. Yeah. So what drew you to acoustics originally? How did how did you originally get from from <laughs> Glenn the schoolboy to um Glenn, the, the acoustics and electroacoustics engineer. Oh, it's a really unusual story, I think, and not, not mainstream. Uh, my dad had a really good hi-fi system, um, and I, for some reason, was interested in it. As, as Glenn, the schoolboy, was highly interested in electronics, um, but also loved good sound. So I can remember coming home from school and, you know, sit down, and my parents were quite accommodating of my loud progressive rock music back in the 70s, and... And I just sit down for an hour after school, after catching the train home for an hour, and and listen loud and to really good sound. And um, it and I can remember going to a uh, a concert um, in a religious context and coming back and telling my dad the sound was just terrible. He said, "Write a letter, tell them what you think they should do." Of course, that went nowhere, but it piqued my interest. 
So then, you know, because I loved electronics, I uh, started at Sydney University at um, doing electrical engineering, and there I was strongly influenced by uh, the senior lecturer called Dr. Richard Small, who, who was who became quite famous in the world of loudspeaker theory. This is um, the, the small teal, teal small parameters exactly, mm-hmm. and um, we became quite friendly and he was very supportive and, you know, a bit of a technical mentor at, at uni. And he just kind of got me involved in loudspeakers and he said, come and measure some loudspeakers in, like in the holidays. And I thought he was meant, I'll pay you to do this. But in reality, he said, no, this is for your research. And so I went around all the manufacturers because back then we had manufacturers mm. of, of, of driver transducers. Yeah. And uh, went into his lab and, you know, measured these things, these teal small parameters, and he set me into these are my papers, go away, read them, come back, ask me questions. So that kind of kept on going. And um, in the end he said, oh, I'm, I've got some clients I don't have time to look after. Would you be interested? And I said, well, um, yeah, sure. Back then I didn't know what I didn't know, <laughs> which, of course, is a really important thing. And um, so it just grew and then... Um, so I then worked as an electronics engineer, um, but specialising in audio test equipment yeah. and working at quite a high level and we were competing with audio test equipment against the likes of Hewlett-Packard and Tektronics and those high-end people. And uh, um, But then I started to get more and more clients who wanted some electroacoustic advice on basically hi-fi and a little bit of sound reinforcement. And uh, I then went and did a master's couple of master's subjects at Sydney University um, in electroacoustics and just fell in love with the whole concept of electroacoustics. I even got 110 out of 100 because it was a bonus question. <laughs> and um, Was this through the architecture department or through engineering? No, this, this is through electrical engineering. engineering. Architecture science, um, I don't think, had any form of acoustics at that time. I'm not sure when Professor Fergus Fricky joined that department and started to create that, it may have been the 80s. But mm. this is sort of... Because I, I did electrical engineering at Sydney Uni. Did you? I did. In the uh, 90s. Oh, and wow. Fer- Fergus Fricky was there at that time. And oh. the acoustics department was through the um, was through architecture. Right. Matt, I had no idea about that, about that from you. There you go. Oh, we'll have to talk about that <laughs> offline. <laughs> and uh, so... That kind of got me really up to speed in terms of electroacoustic theory and Baranic was the Bible and um, what, what it was um, the Baranic electroacoustics text, of course, he's written lots of other texts. But then... Because um, they were some of the first, Leah Baranic's books were some of the, the first that really went in, in depth in acoustics and acoustic theory and, and then the practical applications of it. You're absolutely correct. There was Baranic, there was Olson, um, um, and, a, and a bunch of papers by mm. guys like Novak. And particularly what interested me was the whole bent that where, through, where Dick Small came from, which was these low-frequency driver parameters where you've got the um, – effectively the electrical equivalent circuit can be used to model the acoustic output. Yep. So that just slotted straightly into my electrical engineering ability, mm. but my love of music as the output. Mm. Um, I mean, I was also a clarinetist at, at school, and I went on to do jazz studies at the cons- – con and clarinet and then uh, started to play saxophone in bands and things like that. So this love of music has always been 
which, of course, music is one of the output of the transducers, has mm. been one of the driving forces in my whole career and where I, where I want to work, you know. So j- just a hole there then, because this is, this is a question I ask everyone that I speak to in acoustics, is, is what does music mean to you? What does it mean in your life? What does it mean to your, how has it influenced your career? Um, can you talk about music a bit? Um, music is a number of domains for me. It's complete engagement with particular sorts, types. I mean, I'm, I'm very eclectic, but within but there are some particular genres that just really engage me where I'll just listen intricately to all the harmonies and the structures. Basically, it's progressive rock in the 70s, yeah. baroque, um, romantic piano music, um, rhythm and blues, especially Chicago blues. Yeah. Um, then I love to perform. I actually like being on stage. Mm. I like the adrenaline hit of figuring out a solo in a in a blues band. Yep. Wondering what I'm going to play next, and hoping that the psycho my subconscious figures something out that my fingers can move to. Yep. Um, so I like that adrenaline, and um, I like performance. So it's um, it's not often background for me. It's yep. more foreground. Yeah. It's a listening experience. Um, I love if if the sound is good at a at a concert. It's completely engaging. I just like being transported somewhere and mm. engaging with the music. There's something um, about the experience of live music and being in a room with music happening that we can put parameters around. We can measure some of the things that happen, but it goes beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I also love the interactions on stage. You know, mm. when you're actually in an ensemble that's doing something, everyone's working together and creating something. Yeah, so it's a teamwork thing, and I do like working in teams. Mm. So it's a multifaceted thing. Um, but I had bands at school. You know, classical ensembles I put together, and a jazz ensemble at high school, and and stuff. But um, yeah. So going back to my how I got here, and then mm. I. This is Australia, it's not America, and there's not that much work in electroacoustics. And given that I don't want to be an audio consultant and an AV consultant, mm-hmm. which is more box-driven, I love the theory, the science of sound. I did. I reveled in science at school. I loved yep. it, and especially the physics component. Um, not enough work. So I then started to get people, gave me some acoustics work. I started to think, I don't know enough here. So I then went and did a whole bunch of master's subjects at New South Wales in their noise department. And that really got me right up to speed with respect to the acoustical theory as distinct from the electroacoustical theory. Mm. So the University of New South Wales at that time was offering what? What did they? It was a master's. It was a master's course in mechanical engineering. Right. But there were about five subjects within that that were very theoretical. There was one was called noise, and another one was called advanced noise. There was measurements with Bob Randall, you know, who was the world's great in, in terms of. Um, wrote the book for B&K on um, vibration analysis with yeah. all that sort of capstral theory and stuff like that. And that was not an architectural thing. It was really a noise-based, measurement-based mm. um, based course. So I did that for three years, a number of subjects, mm-hmm. and that kind of made me feel like I knew enough to start practising um, responsibly, I suppose. Yep. And, yep. um, you know, that I could feel accepted by my peers. Yep. 
So, you know, we kind of moved into that to keep a consultancy alive, at the same time wanting to do as much work as possible in the electroacoustics domain. Um, I think that's probably a, a long story. <laughs> so you did you set up a company then to to consult or Yes, I've been consulting since since 84. Yeah. I left my day job as an electronics engineer. Yeah. I, I then worked for the great Australian company called AWA that went yeah. belly up, sadly, um, through mismanagement and um, and started consulting in electroacoustics and then morphed from that into, or sort of not morphed, but added in the acoustical domain mm. um, as time went on. So you, so 84, that, so Renzo Tone and I, I talked to her recently and he started up, I think he hung up his shingle in Sydney in 82 or 83, somewhere around there. So you guys were both <laughs> starting out in, uh, as consultants in, in the Sydney in the 80s. What was, yeah. what was that experience like trying to start up from, from scratch and well, trying to run a company in a, a field that wasn't all that well established at that time? Indeed. We... Our paths are different because Renzo started a classical acoustic consultancy, whereas mine was not a classical acoustic consultancy. Um, so, and our client bases were quite different. So, I think we had quite different kind of approaches to business. With electroacoustic, it was it was all word of mouth. So, I did. Um, I can remember the guy that mixed. Sorry, for, as an example of how different they are. One of my clients back in the um, early 80s was the guy that did front of house mixing for the Emanuel brothers, Tommy Emanuel mm-hmm. and Phil Emanuel. Yeah. And back then you couldn't buy decent off-the-shelf loudspeakers for, for live work. And um, so he said, well, can you build me something? So we built him something. And it, wasn't, it didn't have to go super loud, so we weren't in that territory. So we built this very loud hi-fi system for, for him. And we did that from a number of other people as well. So they, it, it was this word of mouth kind of boutique specialised thing. At the same time, we started doing quite a lot of hi-fi speaker design work for local manufacturers. Yeah. And we were actually quite successful there. got a number of awards of loudspeaker of the year for particular products that were submitted to magazines for, yeah. you know, their annual competition. There seemed to be a lot more of that sort of thing, a lot more loudspeaker design and construction. Renzo Tonin had a had a little business before he got into acoustics building um, loudspeakers. I didn't know that. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> it's funny how similar some of these stories are when you yes. start talking to people. Exactly. Well, you're doing electrical engineering. <laughs> and and, and, and that, that and how accidental it all is. Yeah, exactly, and how accidental. Well, in, in fact, I can remember um, part of the um, – um, we someone found out about us who was doing the um, look. The architect who was looking after the, a refurb of the Manly Vale Hotel, and they they were kind of they had big bands, and there was residential noise problems. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, at that stage, I didn't know enough about room acoustics and architectural acoustics and noise control to feel confident of that. So I subbed that out <laughs> to another consultant. So that you know, I was protected, and yep. um, and gradually along the way, I've you know, kind of learned enough to take those projects on, 
you know, some years ago, but um, but all accidental, mm. um, all completely. Um, so, and I was fortunate in starting that that I my then wife at the time was a teacher and um, she was earning good money, so we <laughs> we could afford the the significant drop in um, in family income. You had a patron, exactly, to allow me to to grow the business. Yeah, and. Um, and I was also lean and mean, of course, working from home, and yeah. um, and that and continued to do so until um, two thousand and three. Yeah. So you built you built for fifteen years. You built up your sort of private consulting practice, and then in ninety nine, you took a job with Arab. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Well, what prompted that move after being your own boss and? Sort of building something up from from nothing. Well, it, I was invited to join Arab. They actually bought my practice. Uh, yes, okay. they wanted to expand their electroacoustics. Yep. And um, and given that at that stage we'd had considerable credits and and awards mm. for our sound system design work, and was known on the international stage, I guess I was attractive. Mm. So they actually they bought the practice. They bought the goodwill. Which my accountant valued all our had considerable our test equipment that they brought that and the technical library, and so I went across. I mean, I literally sold my soul, and uh, and it was very enjoyable to work with some great people. Yeah, and um, and it wasn't just like I'd run out of work and I had to go and work at Arab. It Mm. was like it was invited, and of course the Arab network globally is fantastic, and I was welcomed in, and I felt it was a very it's a wonderful way to have a quite a major change mm. in the career, and and they're a company that does amazing work. Yeah, I mean, they've worked on on some amazing projects, and they have a lot of people around the world that yeah, you know, in different teams and yeah, going from a you know working out of home and being a, your lean lean and mean, uh, Glenn Limbrook and uh, <laughs> consultant gun for hire, yeah, and then going to work for, I mean, a, effectively a multidisciplinary multinational. Company, what what was that experience like? Must have been a big change. It was, it was on the whole really positive, and in some ways was a renaissance for me, um, because it it really reoriented my whole thinking. Because the UK part of Arab is was at the time very important to the Arab, especially with architectural acoustics, um, was very important to the Australian practice. I found it about the Institute of Acoustics, for example, mm-hmm. yep. and and because of my electroacoustics work, was invited to go and um, do some projects in the UK, and I teamed that up with visit to, to the Reproduce Sound Conference that the IOA runs every year, and I've just been to my seventeenth con- conference in a row, and I'm on the on the committee now that organises the conference, and to be exposed to that part of the world's thinking. Is fantastic, and on the whole, there's much greater awareness of architectural acoustics than in Australia amongst right. amongst consultants, I believe, and um, and certainly speech intelligibility, and um, which is my one of my particular interests. You know, because intelligibility is part and parcel of that subjective experience that we have, from which I started earlier on saying. So that was just fantastic to go and work in the UK and be exposed to all of that. Um, which and out of that I ended up joining 
or doing a couple of papers that then resulted me in being invited to join the committee that looks after speech transmission index. Mm. And that committee's met every six months for the last, geez, 10 years. And and you've done some research looking at the differences between subjective and measured speech intelligibility. What What is the difference? <laughs> it's profound. <laughs> um, the the methods of measuring speech intelligibility aren't yet sufficiently sophisticated to embody the range of conditions that are encountered during normal speech, especially speech that has some unfamiliar content. Mm. Now, if it's all familiar content, like we're chatting here, then the human process, the human hearing process has a lot of redundancy in it, the redundancy of the context and all that kind of stuff. You make words up, you fill it in, it doesn't matter too much. But if there's sophisticated arguments that are being presented, like in courts and hopefully parliaments, um, uh, or proper names, as in perhaps a transport situation, and the listening might be a bit stressful because you're under pressure, then the metrics such as AI, SII, STI don't really come into play as well as they should there mm. with those. And um, part of, because I've come at acoustics from this love of sound perspective and what do I hear, it was first of all, what do I hear, and then how do I marry the sums, how do I marry the physics and the calculations and mm. the prediction methodologies and the, and the model to what I hear? Yep. But because I started in the loudspeaker domain, making things sound good, I've become very, very aware of the role of frequency response or tonality as we hear it yep. perceptually in what we hear. You know, if I was to you know, cover my hand with my mouth, then I'll go all muffled and the clarity will fall. It may not fall enough to be problematic, but in circumstances, in certain circumstances, it can be problematic. Mm. In an STI situation, that's only really modelled by ma noise masking the speech. It doesn't really properly bring in the concept of what we call self-speech masking, whereby the sound of speech itself, of some sounds, can mask other sounds within the speech. Mm -hmm. Lower sounds masking the higher frequency sounds through the upward masking mechanism. And... Um, the masking model in STI is much more limited than what it should simplistic. be. Simplistic. Simplistic, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So my particular paper I wrote on that was we just did some word scores of, of um, they were phonetically balanced word scores and they were recorded in the UK by a company called AMS Acoustics in their um, reverberant chamber. And I just got a whole bunch of listeners in the UK and Australia to rate them. And this is not what you'd call an academic piece of research because it was, this population sample was far too small. If you compute the STI that should have resulted from those word scores, um, you got much less than what we measured in the reverberation, in the reverberation chamber, mm. which had been particularly decked out to give an STI of a half. Right. So we were getting word scores of 80%, but yet the STI of a mm. half should predict something much higher than that. And it was all to do with the tonality. Oh, sorry, I, what I did forget to add was that we doctored 
the sound of the speech in the chamber with filters. Right. We radically changed the tonal structure. Yeah. The STI didn't change because it was a low noise environment. Yeah. And yet the word score changed dramatically. Mm. And what was interesting was that even the word score of the um, undoctored speech um, pre-reverberation, in fact, I think it was done, I think we did an anechoic recording and we moved the, they moved the mic into the reverberant chamber. Even the word score in the anechoic recording was not perfect mm. due to... Um, Enunciation issues, presumably, and also this self-speech masking. So even in, in an ideal environment, it, intelligibility is not perfect. Mm. So then you then put the overlay of all these technical factors that degrade the communication process. And, um, and tonality, I actually think, is the big one. Mm. You know, I actually think it's bigger than reverberation. STI is really fundamentally driven by reverberation yeah. and ratio of speech to noise, yeah. LEQ in octave bands. But um, if, you were to, if you were to, you know, in a room, doctor each of the frequency response or tonal balance, temporal situation and background noise, as long as the speech is loud enough, the tonality is the big one. So rescuing a sound system in a difficult acoustic space, it sounds terrible, change the frequency response and get it right, and suddenly the intelligibility will come up, and yet the STI will hardly change. Mm. Do, do you have a do you have a path forward then as to what we should be doing in terms of how we should be quantifying intelligibility? And there is a path. The problem is it's such an expensive path that it can't be done realistically. Yeah. What it really needs is for someone like me to sponsor a PhD student for three to four years to go away and do some serious research. Um, and it's the validation through all the word scores and the fitting the, fitting the model, because STI is just a model that's been fitted to a whole bunch of word scores mm. um, with all the regressions and all that kind of stuff. And um, the people that know more about the STI model on the Standards Committee who are scientists in, in Holland, um, they keep telling us it's all about the validation. We, there's no money. Yeah. Back then, um, TNO, who's effectively the CSIRO equivalent in Holland, um, were funded all that research into STI by Stenikin and Hartgast. And, um, and without that immense funding, that parameter could never have been developed. Mm. And then if we're going to make modifications to it in a real, in a meaningful way, yeah. there's a huge amount of research Mm. And it will need hundreds of thousands of, of dollars to do that. Mm. The funding is just not available. So I, personally, I know the way forward, but it's not yet there. Mm. The other thing is it's not that well accepted in the scientific community that tonal balance is that important. Right. Um, because it's um, – we don't – I use the word robust intelligibility, robust meaning under difficult, under imperfect situations, you can still receive the message. Robust might be kid, a kid yelling, um, the train pulls in, um, all sorts of things, um, which are not necessarily reflected in the STI, but they do impact greatly on the reception. Mm. 
mm. of, of the message. And the better the tonal balance is, the more it's robust. Yeah. So getting the scientific community to recognise that is part of the, the battle. And, um, however, we have one of the things that we have got in the standard, the current SDI standard, is the fact that the frequency response of a, of a sound system um, is not – any imperfections in that um, are not necessarily reflected by the STI algorithm. Right. So that is in the standard, but there's no ability to really quantify that mm. at this stage. So that's it's a difficult path um, to do, and I, I believe it actually needs uh, a better masking model, um, something along the lines of the method in the SII, Speech Intelligibility Index, which is a more sophisticated model. But it also needs to rec- recognise on a moment-by-moment um, basis that because speech is changing in frequency content all the time, you've got um, different maskings that go on instantaneously, so you almost need to do masking sums on particular time intervals. Mm and come up with it rather than just the overall steady-state yeah, LEQ. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, a lot of the research I did, um, where I started to look for other ways of masking methods to get better correlation, showed huge variations in the 50 millisecond intervals on speech, and we start to look at the masking that results from those each of those individual spectra. You get some pretty amazing um, spectral changes. Mm. Sorry, you get quite a bit of masking yeah, that yeah. Um, that happens. That, and that's just not reflected in the STI model at all. Mm. So going back then, turn of the century, you've, you've gone to, to Arab uh, and you spent four or five years there, but then you went back out on your own? Yeah. Um, Arab started to change. Um, Peter Griffiths had moved on. Um, Dave Anderson moved on. And they were two, two guys that uh, were pivotal in my enjoyment of, of, of Arab. And the culture had started to change as well. And uh, I thought it was time to move on because I didn't feel like I had a – I could play the role that I wanted to play there. Yep. And uh, so I then recommenced consultancy. Yep. Yeah. And that was as acoustic directions? Yes. And in mostly acoustics rather than electroacoustics? Mm, equal mixed. amounts, mixed. And then in 2006, you started Ice Design as a, a separate but uh, sister company. Yeah. Ice Design um, is a company with four principles. Um, effectively, uh, uh, one... Principal Rod in Adelaide is sort of strongly AV and uh, with particularly video and court and expertise in court and parliamentary processes. Um, Mark in Melbourne from Hanson Associates is a, a an acoustic engineer with an AV um, skill base. Uh, David Gilfillan is in electroacoustics and audio engineer in Sydney and does some acoustics. And I'm I do the, the acoustics. And the loudspeakers. I don't want to know about AV as such, yep. but I love the loudspeaker component and how yep. do we make that work to give the desired outcome. Yep. And and Ice Design, it's a great way of working collaboratively. You know, it's the team thing again. Mm. And uh, each of the people are quite expert in their in their fields. 
So there's a lot of um, really, really good brainstorming that happens. And through that company, we've been able to do some quite major projects internationally and um, and in Australia. It's primarily concerned with um, courtrooms and parliaments. Yep. And I stands for integrated communication environments where the acoustics and the electroacoustics and the AV all have to be holistically developed um, if you're going to get the right outcome. Now, a lot of sound system manufacturers or um, you know, system suppliers will offer sound system AV design um, to their clients for free as part of the uh, part of the package. Why um, why would they pay someone like us design to to get involved? That's a really good question, Matt. And it's I one that, probably say uh, and I, it's one <laughs> a that Marshall I, Day offers some of these services <laughs> too. Exactly. So it's a, it's in, a in, bit pointed, but in, in in fact, I'd like to hear what you have to say yeah, about that. Well, in in fact, it's it's a problem that um, pertains to those acoustic consultants who have an electroacoustic skill base. Mm. I mean, acoustic directions, Marshall Day, who actually believe they have the skills, you know. And um, in theory, if the manuf- if the distributors were doing their job well enough, they should be real opposition. But history shows that they don't. And even some of them are graduates who have come out of the audio and acoustics program at Sydney University, and I've taught them. Yep. But I've seen their work that comes back, and it's just too unsophisticated. Yep. And unfortunately, the industry has the availability of software has become problematic. So, you know, most of our listeners will have heard of the these software. Mm-hmm. And, of course, clients like to look at pretty graphs. And so they equate that the pretty graph means the design has been done properly. So distributors are very good at creating pretty graphs yep. without putting proper thought in. And um, so I see time and time again pretty graphs come up where I know the system will will fall far short of the user's needs. And so effectively, one of our missions is to how do we either upskill the distributors, because I, I do a bit of teaching at Sydney Uni, or how do I compete against that? Mm. And, of course, you know, the hourly rates from, for a principal are high. You get it for free. So... <laughs> Um, I think the clients that we enjoy working with the best are those that have had problems. They know they've had problems and they know they want to fix and they can't go around again yeah. for a for a, uh, yet another, um, yet, yet again, unsuccessful system. Mm. And uh, so it's difficult. But at the same time, it does mean that we get to have the clients that we most, most enjoy. And it's good to have a client that really appreciates and values your service, yep. wants to engage with you. In New Zealand Parliament, there was heritage issues to deal with. Um, I should also add that we we don't do a lot of mainstream, you know, um, sound system design work. You know, your local church, we're too expensive for the local yep. church to do that or the local pub. Um, sometimes a sound integrator or contractor, as they're called, might come to you for a bit of advice, but even that's rare. Well, where we tend to get involved is where the acoustics are difficult and that's where the distributors often realise maybe I should should refer the client to a consultant. 
Maybe I should transfer the risk to someone Transfer else. the risk. However, they're not as good at that as they should be at yeah. recognising that this is a difficult scenario and really needs a bit of complex thought. So generally, um, the clients we've worked with come to us direct. Occasionally, they've been referred through distributors. But uh, I think we lost the battle on mainstream everyday sound systems, mm. and which is why we work in these boutique, yeah. um, uh, what I'll call more challenging environments. So that's where I've effectively cultivated my marketplace in electroacoustics, and Ice Design has. And while courtrooms might seem pretty straight ahead, why not stick a bunch of ceiling speakers up there? When you think about the issues in terms of robust intelligibility and listening comfort and localization of, of where the does the sound appear to come from the talker and acoustic gain, i.e. amount of amplification before feedback, all these things come into play and, think, and suddenly your average courtroom system is actually quite a complex beast. And so we've done, we've developed a bunch of solutions involving beam steer loudspeakers for those situations. And, um, and we've started to become known for being able to deliver that. And so it's been one of Ice Design's hallmarks that have got us some gigs because they know that our electroacoustic solutions will be able to kind of solve these problems. Mm. So we've been able to move, sort of win that battle against the distributors. Yeah. So you've, you've sort of, your niche is uh, hostile acoustic environments, perhaps. Uh, hostile and difficult. Difficult. Sorry, hostile and demanding. Demanding. Yeah. So tell me about the challenges of some of those environments. Um, you've done work in cathedrals. Um, you did a big project at Central Station, which you won an engineering award, award for. Yeah. Um, road tunnels is another one. Yeah. you tell me about some of the challenges in those spaces and, and how you need to design in those spaces? Um, the first and foremost thing, there are two foremost, sorry, <laughs> there, are, there are two key ingredients to the, the spaces you just listed. The first is frequency response at every listening position, not mm. just on access to the loudspeaker. Yep. So to do that means you've got to have um, in the listening area a directivity that's constant with frequency, and that's not trivial at all mm. because you've got a near-to-far ratio, near being close to the source, far being from it. It's easy to get it in the horizontal plane, but in the vertical plane, it's much more difficult. The second ingredient is to really get the sound to only go where you want it. Because mm. um, all of those spaces are very reverberant. Exactly. So if you put energy where there's no listener, I guess you're just creating more exactly. problems that you've got to solve. So in a cathedral, you don't want the sound to go up to the roof. Yeah. So it's some sort of beam-controlled thing. But then you've then got and and they've got to go high, they've got to integrate architecturally, of course, and then the sound's got to give this really constant beam with frequency over its target coverage area. Yeah. So you do these two things. Now, uh, cathedrals, we like to use time-sequence distributed systems because there's nothing like the D-squared um, term to give you intelligibility. Or, so you're talking about having a, a, a series of speakers going through the space yeah, that are time sequence. sort of time-delayed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you go right back to the classical direct-to-reverberant ratio equation, which has really fallen out of vogue, and, and for good reason, the 
the, the D squared term comes into play. So the closer you are to a sound source, the more you're in, the intelligibility rises rapidly. Mm. So if you get a number of distributed loudspeakers that are all time sequenced correctly, then you get this really intimate sound that is far more subjectively intimate than the STI would indicate. Mm. Um, so to put, to put it in a simple analogy, if you have a speaker on the stage and you turn it up so that the guy at the back of the room can hear it, then the guy at the front gets blasted. Exactly, which you don't <laughs> um, want. And, and no one really has a good experience at that point. Exactly, yeah. And, um, and these long, really sort of big beam steered arrays that have come into vogue now, they're great for really long throw applications, but if you want to try and do accommodate a, a, a short to far audience distance ratio, then they just break down. So you've then got to take a different way. Um, so, and Central Station in Sydney, it was once again beam-formed loudspeakers um, that get great tonality through through careful control of the beamforming done by Martin Audio um, and frequency response and sort of really good, the best possible temporal pattern in avoidance of echoes through very sort of um, sophisticated beamforming techniques. In a road tunnel, you haven't got a lot of, as long as you've got the bandwidth, um, you can get quite poor STIs like down around 0.3, 0.35 and yet still have a system that's fit for purpose, actually, you know, that can create usable announcements if the frequency response is right. So commissioning is all about getting the tonality of the voice to be just right. Mm. So there's a lot of tweaking in the commissioning. A lot of tweaking in the commissioning process. Because Road Tunnels is all about being able to hear them give you, the announcer give you a direction to go away from the fire. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You know, it's a pretty critical space, a pretty critical message to get across. But there's no... There's never any acoustic treatment, and there's, it's a very difficult um, space acoustically as a starting point. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And um, um, STI is so driven by RT that you often don't get the STI targets mm. that the transport agencies nominate. Yep. But if you can get the tonality right um, and the articulation slow enough and you can get highly acceptable yep. messages that, you know, can help people in those circumstances. Does, so, does that mean that the specs, that they, the specifications that, that, the, that the government body or whoever writes for those spaces at the start of the project, maybe on some other acoustic consultant's advice that, that says STI, you know, 0.7 or something, um, it's the wrong descriptor, it's the wrong way to specify it? Should we be specifying that in a different way? It's, I would... STI is the best method we have, but it's seriously imperfect. Yeah. The only other way to really specify it would be a word-based, a word score-based metric, which is really tedious and expensive to, mm. to test for. Yeah. Um, the big problem I see is that frequency response is in the listening area is not specified. So really a specification should have an, a frequency response in the listening area yeah. and a temporal window because, after all, we are sensitive to direct field in our perception of, of um, sound um, and, tone, and, uh, and reception of clarity and STI. But the other even bigger problem is that 
the government specifies or their consultant specify an STI without any due regard for the acoustic environment in which it's going in. Yeah. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. There's no because STI is so driven by um, reverberation. If you've got a, a seven-second reverberation tunnel or a ten-second RT tunnel, there is just no way you you can get an STI of 0.5. So there's or 0.45. So the road tunnels in Sydney, for example, are a classic case of where the STI that's been nominated cannot be delivered given the acoustic environment that the tunnel um, will have yep. due to cost reasons or maintenance reasons. So it's that separate, separately specifying thing that really has to change. Yep. They, they really must join at the top and, um, and the government take notice of the consultant saying, sorry, we can't get that STI in that tunnel. If you want that, you've got to change that or you've got to accept a lower STI. You talk about it having a holistic design philosophy. Is that what does that mean? In the what? what I guess what does that mean? Yeah, um, it's. A I good, think we, I feel like we're touching on it. Yeah, it's a good buzzword, but really, it involves the translation of what we what what it is we need in technical parameters to create the sound we want to hear, the perceived yep. sound, yep. into a bunch of performance concepts, not necessarily metrics because, because metrics cannot always describe what it is. But if you know what you want to achieve and then, then you create a kind of a, a system design, then how does that system get implemented down at the micro level? Mm-hmm. So in the New Zealand Parliament, that holism was expressed as, well, we know that the level of clarity we want to hear, we know the acoustic challenges of the Parliament space, um, we know we're going to get bleed up here from the gallery loudspeakers, we know we've got heritage over there, we know we've got listeners talking back at a distance of up to seven, 800 metres from a millimetres from a microphone, we know we want to get a certain amount of amplification. How do we solve all those issues simultaneously? Mm. In fact, it's almost holism is simultaneous solution of a bunch of equations, the wrong word, but a yep. bunch of concepts yep. that need to be simultaneously addressed. Mm. And in fact, in that case, it, it came down to the loudspeakers were literally our design right from the ground up mm. because you couldn't buy what we needed. So we had to actually develop the beam steered arrays and all of the signal processing um, to, to create that beam forming. And then, of course, we have to commission it as well. Yep. So holism, it's hard to put, in, put words around what it really is. Yeah. But it is that simultaneous addressing of what do you have to do? Imagine what you had to do to create a human being mm. where, you know, your toe really affects your brain. It's, each of the things has got all these cross-linkages that you've got to, the, the, the parameters all cross-link that you've got to kind of address and control. And if you, try to, if you tried to separate those 10 design issues out and have individual people solve them, you don't get a very good outcome overall in a lot of cases. But the industry is more likely to separate those 10 things out and send them to 10 different people and, and expect a, uh, a holistic or a, yeah. a, a well-knitted um, well 
yeah. um, outcome. Um, you, you can do part of it, like, for example, at Sydney Central Station, those loudspeakers are not – we didn't design them. Yeah. We, we, we developed the concept of, what, of the loudspeaker, and, in fact, it was the head of research in Martin Audio that developed a special beam steering algorithm just for us to optimise the beam of that particular array of loudspeakers. And that particular loudspeaker has gone on to be quite a problem solver for us. So if we, if the, if the venue doesn't need a bespoke solution, but yet still a highly demanding thing, that was able to solve it. So we were able to translate our requirement of keep the sound off that surface, give us really consistent frequency response, mm. and their smarts were able to kind of do that for us. Yeah. But there's not that many situations where you can hive off the design, the solution, the simultaneous solution mm-hmm. of those those parameters. Yeah. In, in going back to another thing you're talking about, um, and I've heard you talk about the, the left and the right brain aspects of sound and the the physics versus the oral experience. Um, how do those things differ and, and relate to one another? Well, they differ at the moment because the left brain, I can never remember which one's which, um, but at least for argument's sake, say the left brain is the numbers and the right brain is the perceived, the feeling, yeah. the does the sound make me feel good? Am I frustrated? Yeah. Do I enjoy it? So at this stage, the numbers that we create or we have, we have created that attempt to describe sound are nowhere near good enough yet, certainly at a day-to-day level like that you and I practice at. Um, to describe the perceived oral experience. Mm. So marrying them, trying to kind of put a mathematical model around what it is we hear to at least allow us to go forward with some kind of holistic design <laughs> is a real challenge. Mm. And, um, and of course, it's part of the thing why acoustics is often thought of as an art. Mm. But really, there's an enormous amount of science yeah. It's just that it's not yet sufficiently... Well, it's evolving. It's evolving, exactly. We, we had uh, Sa- uh, Sabine, am I right in saying Sabine, with the uh, RT? Yeah. Uh, and so we have a, a parameter you know, 100 years back. Yes. Um, and then in the intervening period, we've added you know, clarity and lateral fraction and all these other descriptors and uh, that we've sort of added to it and we now have a bunch more parameters that describe mathematically what's or, or measurement-wise what's going on in a space, um, which align more closely to what we experience and what we expect from a space. But, yeah, I, I, I still think that's evolving. We're, you, we're, not, we're not at a point where we, where we can tell it all in the numbers. You're on the money. You and I were just talking before our interview about spatiotemporal behaviour of sound and you used the word reflection sequence. Now, the reflection sequence ultimately ends up in the listener's ears as a sound mm. and can, if it's not, not the right kind of sequence, can degrade speech clarity under what I'll call these more challenging situations. Now, to try and describe a spatiotemporal relationship of sound as a bunch of numbers Clarity falls far short of that. The clarity mm. ratio is far short of that. RT is far short of that. So we've got to evolve to the next level if we're going to try and encapsulate 
the reflection sequence as as a descriptor of what we hear subjectively. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, so now you, you're back in private practice, um, and at some point you're appointed as an associate of uh, the architecture and design faculty at Sydney University. So you ended back up back at Sydney Uni after all. Well, I was just invited to be. I mean, I've, I've, I was actually involved um, in setting up the course at Sydney University back in the nineties. Ah, right. Okay. Um, uh, Fergus Fricky set that up, and um, through the electrical engineering department at Sydney University, they found out about me and invited me in. So, given that you run two companies <laughs> and all the other things you do in your life, why do you make time for uh, the academic uh, work? Well, there isn't that much of it. I mean, uh, really, to be honest, it's only one or two lectures a year. Um, but I really enjoy it. I enjoy lecturing. I enjoy educating people into the way I think, helping the world to be a better place and creating a love of wanted sound and how do we enhance that and not just treat sound as noise. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the architecture and design faculty has at least got that as its preliminary, as its fundamental aim as distinct from like other institutions where you just learn about noise. Um, and it's interesting when both my engineers here are from that course, um, an engineer working for David Gilfillan, my co-ice director, is from that course. Mm. Um, We've got a couple of graduates. Or, <laughs> there you go. Not graduates, pe- people that work yeah. for us. Quite a few of them have come out of that yeah. course. And so it's been highly effective at creating graduates for our industry. So to actually keep that process becoming more enlightened is actually, hey, it's lovely to, to sit around with a bunch of people where they've done the course that I was involved in setting up just as, as an old guy. feels really good, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I lectured there quite a bit in the 90s as well in loudspeaker yeah. design and sound system design. Um, so, yeah, that was good. One of the things I really mm. like about Sydney Uni is, uh, and coming from the electrical engineering, is that you have electrical engineering and then about 50 metres walk you have uh, the Seymour Centre and the music faculty teaching there and then you walk another 50 metres and you've got the architecture faculty with the acoustics um, lab and, and, and the teaching side. So to have those three acoustics, engineering and music all within sort of spitting distance. I, I really like that experience of having mm. that close. I, I, I sort of thinking about it now, I'd, I'd be nice if they uh, sort of pushed that more and made made more advantage of that. I, I really liked the um, having those three things because uh, I took sort of took all the acoustic courses that I could do, and I ah. took all the I took a couple of music courses that I could sort of squeeze into my <laughs> engineering God. degree. Yes. Oh, really. Um, and I, yeah, I really like that uh, that aspect of Sydney Uni. Yeah, I I I support that. I was unaware until just yesterday that music was in the Seymour Centre. I always thought music was over over the other side of the of City Road. I think it is sad though that Sydney University Electrical Engineering Department no longer has an audio research mm. part. Back in the seventies, they were highly involved with audio research. So not just loudspeakers in Dick Small's case, but um, Bob Freighter, who was seriously, was very senior in the CSIRO for many years after he left Sydney University, 
and others were involved in amplifier design research. Uh, okay. And and in the early days of what was then called transient intermodulation distortion, and they showed that to be a bit of a furphy, but they found a more uh, related but better descriptor and more robust um, descriptor of the distortion products and amplifiers. And that was this really hotbed of, of thought, of audio mm. equipment thought. Now, electrical engineering no longer has that. Yeah. And, and so while arc science has taken over what I'll call the more subjective aspects of audio, yeah. it would be great to have um, Sydney University being involved in the actual electrical engineering part of audio. Mm. For example, Derby University with Professor Malcolm Hawksford, who's just retired, now he's been involved in the Super Audio CD and his credits, um, um, he was involved in working at Dither in, in, in compact disc mm-hmm. recordings and all those really important things for audio quality came out of, out of Derby Uni yeah, right. or Professor Jamie Angus at, at, at Salford. He, he, he did a lot of stuff about, um, um, I think he's electrical engineering trained. Yeah, okay. um, but that kind of thought is missing. Mm. Um, in that little triumvirate you just you yeah, just described, yeah. Well, I, I went through in the nineties or the late nineties, and they had uh, they had some of the sort of undergraduate thesis topics you could do were um, some audio processing uh, things, sort of DSP processing of audio and, and that sort of stuff. I, I did a industry sponsored um, thesis in um, active noise control, um, but. Uh, there was a little bit of audio processing there, but um, sounds like it wasn't what it was when when you went through. Well, and, just... and to be honest, I haven't haven't been back enough to mm. uh, at all to um, to know what they're up to now. Well, I, I think I mean I mean audio processing is just a, an integral part of life, so mm. you can have it as as a course curriculum item without it being an f- industry focus. I'm just working with one of the guys on at Derby University. On a method to decorrelate signals, and which um, which which is would be extremely useful for us in commissioning sound systems, where you've got two loudspeakers covering a listener, they really need to be decorrelated because mm. um, otherwise you get really bad um, phase interference effects, can damage intelligibility. And that's a PhD that's happening at Derby now. Mm. So it's that kind of really in-depth inquiry. Yeah that I'd love electrical engineering at Sydney to kind of re-establish. Mm, be good. Mm. Just down the road from us. Just down the road from us. <laughs> Maybe we should make some overtures. Yeah. <laughs> um, so of all the things you've done in your career, which sounds like quite a bit, what, what are you most proud of? Um, St Paul's Cathedral, um, New Zealand Parliament, New Zealand Supreme Court, um, Central Station in Sydney, uh, and not just the Grand Concourse, but the 23 platforms um, there, and the Australian Parliament, yep. and the High Court of Australia. Yep. So um, they've those systems have have had long legacies. Mm. Um, Australian Parliament's just being replaced now, and we lost our gig to you guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, that's that system stood the test of time of twenty five years, way ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a testament to the holistic design process we alluded to earlier. For that, I don't know whether the High Court system is still there, but that that won an award and that really made their life so much easier. Mm. 
um, St Paul's Cathedral that was done as part of the restoration of the building, but the chapter, um, the chapter, the the cathedral chapter was the sponsoring organisation, and basically the sound system success has been so good that we regard it as the most significant part of our restoration. Wow, St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne. In Melbourne, yeah. Um, New Zealand Parliament was a really hard gig, and um, we got an outcome we were very pleased with there, and it served the Parliament well. Um, and uh, and New Zealand Supreme Court, which was a combination of acoustics and electroacoustics. Now that's a iconic building because it's a the, the participants live inside an egg. It's a it's a it's a sphere in three dimensions. Sorry, it's a ellipsoid in three dimensions. And um, so not only do we have horizontal focusing, we've got vertical focusing mm. as well. And how do we how do you stop the focusing? And all the concentration, or the build-up, the reflection sequences that are, that create a build-up of sound, or create echoes in the space, and uh, that was a seriously holistic piece of work with the architects. Mm. And to their credit, Warren and Marnie were just brilliant at, uh, yeah. at finding a taking our desire for diffusion and creating a structure that worked. Mm. And it allowed the a story to be to be developed because it just looked like a carry cone, yep. the New Zealand carry cone, and um, and so um, that has worked extremely well. And the building just looks exquisite. You know, the craftsmanship that was used to build all the timber diffusers, um, which are kind of like diamond shaped boxes, and and wrap them in this spiral like format was just amazing. And for the project to to deem that it was worth funding that was just marvellous. I doubt if that would have ever happened in Australia. Mm. I think our need to be cost conscious here is sometimes too great and we lose sight mm. of building for building grandeur and soul for the future. And this is a building of grandeur and soul. You walk in and just go, wow, this is gorgeous. Mm. And the fact it works is <laughs> yeah. even better because it was really difficult. The electroacoustics in the building were um once we had the acoustics sorted out, we're pretty straight ahead given where we'd come from with beam steer loudspeakers and that kind of stuff. So, But, yeah, that was a really nice and re- that was a really rewarding um, project. Mm. What do you think the future of acoustics look like? Rosie, <laughs> in a word. <laughs> um, as long as we can keep educating our client base into recognising we offer long-term value mm. and to... Um, that's the mission, keep educating our client base into value. But I mean, noise, co- noise codes are useful and they obviously help our industry to survive. Yep. Um, I think a mission is to um, really educate the marketplace on the value of architectural acoustics Yeah. and to actually get architects to consider that, you know, the long-term benefit of this project will 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 happen. Mm. Sorry, the engagement of a consultant who understands these issues will really enhance the long-term value of the project. So it's a threat, but it's also an opportunity. Because um, we, we experience, as humans, we experience a space in more than the more than the visual, um, and the visual drives a lot of architecture. Yeah, um, and and we have you know more than one sense. Um, so that sense of 
you know, the acoustics of a space, whether or not we put words around that or, or acknowledge it um, consciously um, and the feel and the, the airflow in a space and all these other things um, that are not, not represented on a set of plans. Um, and, and a lot of the good architects realise that. Um, yeah. Nice if, nice yeah. if all of them did. Yeah. Nice, um, nice that one, if, if some that design restaurants might. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think if you were to look at almost every space in which humans gather, the primary pr- purpose of the gathering is speech mm. or music or, yeah. and or music. Well, communication. Communication, communication. exactly. Because we're communicative beings, we're hardwired to, exactly to, to right. relate. Yes. And, yeah. and communication is and, part of that relation. And so you walk in the space, yes, you've got your visual bearings, yes, it's a really nice space to be. You could then blindfold everybody and their engagement in that space would be almost as high as if they were unblindfolded mm. because the intent is the communication. So I think the challenge for our industry is to actually up the ante on the internal acoustics so that that daily need is is actually is it is understood by building project managers and designers so they get skilled acousticians to come and give advice um, so i think that's the mission and we if we can make inroads there it, it makes the future of acoustics even more rosy mm. um the um and there's a general awareness amongst the general population of noise and and of course as we start living more densely mm. you know and, and apartment noise and all that kind of stuff comes into play so um, Plenty more work to do. You know, well, I've just seen we decided we were a bit of an income stream, so we bought a tapping machine and set about learning all of all about impact noise. And you know, four years later, I know a bit, and it's a good income stream. So yeah. it's only going to get more. Yeah, yeah. But um, but I also think another um, challenge is for how do we, as an industry, keep the skill base of our practitioners, our, our acoustic consulting practitioners. Hi, how do we keep mm. educating um, people into doing sophisticated work and asking the mm. question, what don't I know? Yep. Where, where's my knowledge gap here? Yep. Um, what might be missing in my approach? Mm. What does the future hold for you? You've done a lot. Done a lot. What, what, have, what um, do you still want to do or well, achieve or why do you keep doing this? <laughs> I love it, thank God. <laughs> um, I love the physics. Yeah. I just, the older I get, the more I love the physics. Yeah. I just I could I could read papers all day long and try and get them and do a spreadsheet or a bit of MATLAB software. I could just do it all day long if I could get paid for it. Um, I've normally at my age you downsize in your house, but I've just upsized, and I've got a mortgage I've got to fund. <laughs> so you know I ain't retiring. That's a good any, reason. I'm not retiring soon. And so, thank goodness, I um, I love what I do and see a role for my particular bent, you know, and philosophy in in this area we we work in. Yeah. And finally, um, what advice would you give to someone starting out in acoustics? Um, okay, I think the first part would be to. get some proper acoustic education at university somewhere um, and recognise that 
in Australia you can't get a complete acoustic advice at an institution, unfortunately. Sydney, Sydney University is great with its architectural, with its bent on per- perception of sound and architectural acoustics and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But you don't go to Sydney University to learn about noise control and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where can you go in, in Australia? It's difficult. Mm. So recognise that just getting your course, your master's, your undergraduate, isn't, is just effectively the start of your education. Then devour the textbooks, devour the journals, which is in fact the way that I've learned most of my electroacoustics and acoustics. It's been devouring all the journals, going on holidays. I was reading journals, not in this Hemming way. <laughs> my <laughs> wife hated me. <laughs> um, so then, once you've got that, then recognise that maybe you don't know it all, and continually ask yourself, "What? What don't I know here? Where's the hole in my knowledge?" Who can I ask that will help me plug that gap? What can I go and read that will do that? And, of course, we all have to take on jobs where we've, um, we've been unfamiliar mm. and, and the client might want you because they like working with you. Well, you know, go and read the journals, lose money on the job, but get to grips with the, um, with the issues technically yep. and it will serve you well. So... It's not just about the advice starting out, but it's the advice of how do you progress your career to become well-rounded and really knowledgeable and experienced, but yet open to new possibilities. Mm. Um, and in fact, being open to a bit of regular theory that had just slipped through the crack and you'd never quite understood. Mm. Yeah. You know, reading a textbook, you might have read it five times, but you go and read it again, there'll be one line that jumps out at you and he goes, oh, that's just made more sense of that item over there. Yeah. So that continual re-inquiry. Yeah. Um, in fact, the journal articles that are most useful are often the ones that help you consolidate the regular theory and expand it a little mm-hmm. bit yeah. rather than those that are working in the really esoteric aspects yeah. of acoustics yeah. and electroacoustics that will only come into play in 30 years' time. You know, revisiting the conventional stuff and really getting a knowledge base solid in those areas I think is... Well, having done that, it served me well, and I would recommend that to um, to people wanting to progress progress their career. But the and, and over overarching all of that is listen, listen to the sound. Always ask yourself, what do I hear? How do I ascribe the numbers that we can ascribe to that sound to help me understand it, to help me control it, enhance it, whatever. You know, um, listen in detail. Yesterday we were down at uh, in a town hall in a regional part of New South Wales and um, Camille, our engineer, took her violin. She's a skilled violinist and we were listening to the sound on stage of a note being played and then stopped with the bow and listening to the decay structure. And it, when you started to listen in a particular area of the stage, you heard this bloom. Mm. When you step one pace back, it had gone, step one pace forward, it had gone. But listening in detail to that fine structure and then marrying, well, I hear that, what might be causing that in the terms of the shape of the spaces, the surface finishes? So equating or attempting to relate and equate what you hear with what technical concepts you Mm. do have and marrying them and trying to... And if the better you do that, the better you're equipped to at least tell your client 
offer your client a way forward and helping and helping them um, helping to convince them they should pay you more money to do a better solution. Yeah. <laughs> well, Glenn Limbrun, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matt. It's been very enjoyable. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback or comments, you can send me an email at talkingacoustics at gmail.com. For more information on Glenn and his work, you can check out his website at acousticdirections.com. That's his acoustic consultancy business. Uh, And for his work in electroacoustics, you can check out icedesign.net.au. Thanks for listening.